This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich. I'm here with Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And Richard Lawson. Hello. And back with us, blast from the past and the present, Mike Hogan. Welcome Yay! back. Hey, guys. Yay! Thank you for having me. Uh, long requested by listeners who have been wondering where you were. Do you want to just tell people? I mean, you, you haven't gone anywhere, really. We see you all the time, but uh, people have missed you, Mike. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm doing my uh, my job. Um, and <laughs> telling us what to do. Yeah. yeah what? <laughs> and, then, and then for, uh, the last month I was working on this, um, Catherine Eban story about the lab leak investigations. That was very, very intense. So, um, yeah. so it's good. So on top of my like corporate job, um, it was fun to do some real like editing. So that's the fun thing is they, they let me do different things. Yeah, people who think you only just have hot Oscar takes don't know that you're uh, editing uh, elaborate COVID uh, origin stories. I should have snuck some Oscar takes into the investigative <laughs> report. Just little Easter eggs for the Little Goldman crew. Uh, was the HFPA involved in the leak somehow? You know, <laughs> I was going to say, we need to have you make up for lost time and make your Oscar predictions for this past year. You need to predict next year's Oscar winners. Like, what else? We need to have you weigh in on everything that you've missed out on over the Nomad past year. Nomadland. Yeah, yeah. Well, well done. Congratulations. <laughs> Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> Actually, I did kind of call that. Well, I mean, Richard, was... Richard called it earlier, but Mike called it very vehemently at the end in a way that we ignored. So Yeah, I Mike. feel like I, uh, I don't remember if I mentioned this on the air or not, that Mike was one who was like, we should probably take this Anthony Hopkins thing seriously. And I was like, no, come on. Like, you're just like reading too much into like one person gossiping. And Mike was 100% right. And I was 100% wrong. Totally right. I have a tragic... Uh, ability to see when the Academy is going to do things like that. <laughs> I see a train wreck on the horizon. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we My will train bring you wreck back radar in. is very strong. <laughs> we'll bring you back in time next time to, uh, to warn us all. 
Um, well, Mike, we brought you back to talk about all kinds of stuff, but also we're continuing our Oscar flashbacks. And you came in uh, and chose to talk about All About Eve, which I'm so excited to talk about. Um, and then at the end of the episode, we'll have two interviews. We have our Emmy season interviews continuing. Uh, our colleague Sonia Soraya talked to Ethan Hawke about The Good Lord Bird. And then uh, not an Emmy interview. I talked to Jimmy Smith about In the Heights, which is out this week and we will talk about as well. Um, but first, uh, we have exclusive news to break here, which is that uh, Richard Lawson, you're going to France, the Cannes Film out, Festival. Yeah, last minute, just got approval from on high. Um, yeah, it's exciting. I mean, look, there's a ton of protocol stuff I have to do both before and during the the when my time overseas because of COVID stuff, obviously. Um, but because I'm fully vaccinated, I, I hopefully will be able to enjoy a somewhat business as usual festival with, I'm sure, many tweaks. I don't anticipate I'll be at a lot of parties, for example. Um, but that's fine. I don't go for the parties. I go for the movies. And it's but an Richard interesting Richard Yachts lineup. are open air, so I think it's safe, right? Mm. Well, that, that, that's actually very true. So I'm going to have to keep it exclusively to yachting, I think. <laughs> well, and, and yacht parties are your preferred parties, right, Richard? Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, anything where you have to take your shoes off, it's not, you know, like you're required to. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the can lineup came out last week as we were figuring out your travel situation. And it, it's interesting because it is some sorry stuff. It's a lot of titles that we've been kicking around for a long time. Like, I think if you tried to predict the can lineup, you'd probably do better than usual this year because stuff has been like, you know, the French Dispatch. I think everyone had their sights on that. Um, but what feels exciting about it, Richard, either for you or maybe for the Oscar uh, watchers who are listening to us? There was a lot of thought from some kind of prognosticators that because you get the festival coming back after a year off and uh, also um, because of weird things with at the time, it looked like UK people were not going to be able to come to the festival. And it was a question of who from elsewhere in the world, but the United States was was had more of the green or orange, you know, yellow light to go. There was a, a kind of thought that it might be a lot of big star driven English language American stuff because there is a lot of that potential stuff floating in the ether. Like um, like Black Widow we talk like like that level well, of big stuff. Uh, yeah, or like, you know, big kind of fall movies. Like there had been rumblings about the Ridley Scott movie and a couple mm. other things. So and there is some big stuff like Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch, which I'm pretty sure was going to be at Cannes last year, and some other things, you know, like the Matt Damon, Tom McCarthy movie, uh Stillwater is premiering out of competition. So there is that kind of big star driven stuff. But there's also a really interesting lineup from around the world, as Cannes should have every year. Um yet again. Again, not great with uh, female directors in the main competition. There are four, uh, which is better than some years, but not, you know, still way, way, way fewer than half or more. Um, but yeah, I, I'm I, I'm excited. I think that probably the movie that jumps out to me most other than The French Dispatch, and this is an American film, so forgive me, can, but um, is Red Rocket from Sean Baker, who did The Florida Project and Tangerine uh, and some other films. Um, and that... It's, I think we talked about with Joe Reed, it stars mm -hmm. former kind of teen to 20-something heartthrob Simon Rex playing a version of himself, a kind of guy who was washed out, has done some porn in his past. Um, and I just think the story of Simon Rex, who was this kind of curio of my you know teenage years, I guess, being the lead in a movie in the main competition at Cannes from a really lauded filmmaker <laughs> is just the kind of big, wild, weird Cannes story that we, we hope for every year. Sean Baker is so cool. Yeah, and you trust Sean Baker to do this, right? Like, you can imagine it being kind of a gimmick and someone stands, but Sean Baker has, like, his films have just paid so much attention to people who might, you know, not be given a fair shake otherwise. I don't think he'll be mocking anyone, which I, yeah. I appreciate. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, I, so honestly, logistically, like, you know that Americans are allowed to go, but it's unclear, like, how many people are going to be there. If the if there's going to be a red carpet, like, how much of that do we even know? I, I think those logistics are still being sorted out and they're probably not announcing things because they don't want people to be like, they really want people to come, you know? Yeah. And I think they, they want to be like, oh no, it's business as usual. I mean, there were big articles about the British thing and it, now it looks like there is going to be sort of special dispensation for British people to be able to come to the festival. Um, so yeah, I don't know how the, like it, what capacity is going to be like at the screenings, which could mean that like I'm waiting in four hour lines in the July <laughs> south of france heat which you know we're <laughs> while wearing a mask you know so I, I i think those details i'm i obviously have to learn but i'm trying at the moment to like focus on the um the, the exciting stuff versus like i yeah i think there's going to be a lot of protocol that will be probably tricky to navigate especially with the language barrier because even after all these years my french is weak yeah, I mean, can of you know of all the festivals last year, Telluride didn't happen, um, but most of the other ones really went virtual, and Can didn't. It was canceled entirely. So this, the idea of this is kind of like the kickoff. And you know, Richard, as you and I have been talking about sending you, I just feel like it is the return of film culture. You know, Fast and Furious Nine is going to be there in addition to whatever some fancy French film. Like it, it's Mon everything Dieu. kind of coming. <laughs> so everything coming under one tent, saying like, "Come back," and I, I hope it feels that way when you're there. Yeah. And look, I mean, I'll just go down like a, a quick list of filmmakers who have movies there. Leos Carax, Francois Ozon, Oscar Farhadi, Wes Anderson, Sean Baker, Kirill Seren Brennikov, Bruno Dumont, Justin Kurzel, Api Chetpong, Wira Seitakun, um, Jacques Odiard, Paul Verhoeven, Joachim Trier, Mia Hansen Love. I mean, it's like it's it feels like a big kind of a team assemble kind of thing, yeah. um, which is really cool. And that's just in the main competition. You also have the other side categories, either officially part of the festival or not. And um, Tilda Swinton, I believe is in three or four movies uh, at the <laughs> festival. So I hope she kind of hovers over it, presiding, protecting us, you know, as, mm-hmm. as she often does. Yeah. And let us not forget there has not been a can since Parasite premiered at Cannes. Um yeah, so exactly. it's uh you know if you want to pay attention to it just for Oscar reasons like you truly never know what's going to pop out of there. Oh, absolutely. I mean I think that you know some Oscar narrative at least you know one Oscar narrative two the solidifies at Cannes every year. Obviously in 2019 it was like a really big kind of year year for them um not only with Parasite but with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and some other things. Mm-hmm. So we'll see what comes out of that. I mean we talked about in our you know 2021 preview with Joe Reed that like is this the year for Wes Anderson? This now delayed, really anticipated movie where American journalists are sending home dispatches from France about a movie called The French Dispatch. I mean, it just feels yeah. like very much the the zeitgeisty movie right now for us anyway. Uh, well, we will be getting your dispatches from Cannes in about a month. Um, but right now there's another film festival happening and another movie that's trying to get everyone excited again. Um, and The Heights opens this week. Um, it's going to be on HBO Max and in theaters. And it is part of the Tribeca Film Festival uh, tonight as we record this, honestly. It's like it's playing in like nine different outdoor screening venues all around New York City, which is kind of perfect for this movie and for, you know, how they're attempting to do in-person Tribeca this year. Um, I mean, we've been talking about our excitement about this for weeks with on that episode with Joe Reed. I think two of us predicted it to win best picture next year um has any of your is anyone's enthusiasm for in the heights dampened or are we all um just ready for this to send us all back into theaters dancing so i don't want to like put it that way that my enthusiasm is dampened but i will say <laughs> since i was one of the ones to predict it for best picture i'm no longer certain of that prediction mm. uh that being said i do still encourage everyone to dance their way back into the theaters to see it but i don't it like we talked about 
was it last week that we talked about Cruella? I can't recall, but, um, it's also longer than two hours. It's another longer than two hours film in a way that I'm not sure it needs to be, but like individual numbers, I had a great time and, and it gave me that like really excited about movie making feeling. Cause John Chu did some really inventive things, I think with some of the, of the musical numbers, but, um, Overall, there's a lot of added stuff from an already sort of overstuffed theater production that to me made it not move as briskly, I think, as I wanted it to. Does that make sense? So you're saying you think Cruella is a likelier best picture? Absolutely, Mike. You know me. I'm good at this. (laughs) Yeah. Great. Mike, have you seen In the Heights? I actually don't know. I hear Anthony Hopkins is great in Cruella. (laughs) Um, I haven't seen it. I saw the play when it came out. I saw the trailer, which looked good. Um, it's funny because I feel like Hamilton's um, reputation is at its all-time low right now. It will it will come back from being at this low, but it sort of like went from overhyped to like a thing that people find kind of irritating in retrospect, and then it will eventually be remembered as a really great um, thing. But it's a funny time for this to come out. But I still think it looks really good. Yeah, I I mean, I feel like I hope that In the Heights can kind of span beyond like even beyond the audience. It's not gonna be bigger than Hamilton because Hamilton was everywhere. But like it does feel like it has this like universality to it that if you are even a little bit interested in a musical and not that you will that you will go check it out, that it has got entertainment. And to me, the two and a half or not quite two and a half hours, the length is part of the appeal. It's like how they used to make Transformers movies so long because it's like you get more movie for how much money you spend to go to the theater. Like that's kind of where I land on it. Um, and I hope like given the numbers for Quiet Place Part 2 and also Cruella, which we talked about last week, like I hope people bother to see it in theaters, even though it's going to be right there on HBO Max. I mean, I think that happened for The Conjuring 3. So maybe that can work for this one, too. How do we think, I'm, I'm sorry if you've already talked about this, but how do we think it's going to interact with West Side Story in the same year? Because when those Super Bowl, or was it, was it the Super Bowl? Where was, where it, was, was it the that, Oscars. That, sorry, at the Oscar, when the Oscars yeah. ads ran back to back, it was kind of like, oh, I hadn't thought about I think we the had, fact that yeah. these are covering somewhat similar themes very differently. We've talked about it a bit, and I was sort of all in on In the Heights, um, even though it had this sort of timeline disadvantage coming out now versus West Side Story is coming out at the end of the year. Uh, now I do think that like the timeline might work in West Side Story's favor. I'm not down on In the Heights. I just think that, and and also for the record, I'm not down on every movie that's over two hours. For instance, All About Eve is over two hours and it is great, <laughs> great time in cinema. Um, I just think whenever I feel like something losing steam a bit and I see the long running time, I'm like, you. I don't know that you needed this much space to tell this story, if that makes sense. Yeah, I th- I, th- I think that the West Side Story, I think weirdly that's that's going to appeal to a different crowd in some ways. You know, it's obviously a much older show, but it's Spielberg, it's prestige, it's it's judging from the little we've seen of it, trailers and stills and everything. It has a certain kind of arty aesthetic, and whereas In the Heights is beautiful to look at, but it, it it's a little lower to the ground. It's it's um, it's more contemporary. I, 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 you know, it's younger. Um, I, I don't know. I think that they'll they'll kind of have their own fan bases, and of course there will be overlap. But yeah, West Side Story in terms of its like prestige packaging probably has an advantage. But I think we have seen in you know in the past where those kind of ready-made Oscar packages um, actually don't connect with voters, and the more yeah. the scrappier, supposedly underdoggy kind of thing is the one that catches everyone's attention. 
Yeah, because on paper, when you say Spielberg, uh, you know, timeless, whatever, classic, um, we all know those songs from birth and everything. Um, that's a tough thing to compete with if, if at the end of the day there's only one slot in, in voters' minds for, like, a musical along these lines. But you're right that, that does not, none of that is a guarantee that it'll actually work. And, and obviously West Side Story is competing with the previous West Side Story, which was, right. Right. you know, which is a classic. So. Tough, tough competition. <laughs> and the thing yeah. within the Heights, you know, is that, like, we li- you know, Mike, you and I live in, in New York. And I think, Katie, you were in New York when the show premiered on Broadway and won a Tony. It was a big show. Oh, yeah, I saw it. But, like, for many, many, most people in this country, In the Heights is going to be a new, brand new thing. You yeah. know, yeah. and there is some there has to be some cultural osmosis of West Side Story over the years, you know. So I think maybe the the bold and the new will be more appealing and the summeriness, the welcome back to the worldness of In the Heights. Um, the whereas West Side Story, which is a tragedy, maybe won't ring the same bell. The other the other thing about In the Heights that, you know, I agree with everything you said, Richard. But the other thing is that um, the reason In the Heights felt so fresh or a reason that in the heights felt so fresh and exciting when it first premiered on the stage uh is that no one had seen what lin-manuel miranda could do yet right and this was just Mm -hmm. like a really fresh exciting thing and now that they've seen hamilton hamilton i think is um i agree with what mike is saying it's at a it's at a sort of like low in the public estimation point right now but it is i think a perfect to be fair is still a very high point for a piece of musical theater completely but i i have seen some uh, you know, some questions from folks more progressive than me about Hamilton and stuff like that. But anyway, point being, it's a craft wise, musical wise is a more perfected version of what In the Heights is doing. And so if you've seen if you've seen Hamilton, which is almost everyone has, and then you go see In the Heights, which is not like a rough draft of it, but just sort of like an earlier version of it, it won't have that gust of excitement that the stage version did, not having seen anything Lynn could do before. But it's also got like love stories and like a Busby Buck- Berkeley musical number in a pool like, and it's like all filming on this I mean, that pool, yeah 96,000 when you go see it, you'll know what we're talking about it's just like this is a showstopper um, it just has all this energy to it and it's like it's simpler than Hamilton but I think it works with that kind of in the way that like the emotions of West Side Story are simple you know it's like got this very elemental quality to it whereas Hamilton is kind of like bookie and like twisting around history um, and I I hope that gives it an even broader appeal than Hamilton even if it doesn't become like you know the culture shaker that hamilton was well and also it seems like it's a real film unlike hamilton right the, the, oh this is yeah. The first yeah yeah kind yeah. of like True. lin-manuel miranda film yeah. for yes. whatever that's worth you know and like john q john q really makes it cinematic like he just takes every opportunity to make these things work on film that you know we talked about chicago a couple weeks ago and how it worked with the medium of film there's just so many musicals that don't reach that bar the way that um in the heights does i think it's better than the stage show the in the heights the movie I don't remember the stage show well enough. You, to, to you know. can really see John Chu just sort of like trying to break each musical number into something like, what can I do with this one? And that's yeah, really, yeah. that's really great and fun and exciting. And yeah, I don't, I don't mean to be like the rain cloud on this. I, I had a, I had a good time watching it. I think maybe I had set my sights like too high. My, I like ramped it up and I had an extra year to yeah, get excited about it. Height. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, um, so that might be where I'm coming from, but uh, the, the performances were great. Um, there's a song in the middle um, that was actually my favorite part of the stage show too, which is um, Paciencia y Fe. And that is just like a jaw dropping 
like barn burner of a song and a beautifully staged, um, by John Chu. And I just, that alone, uh, I mean, worth the price of admission. I like cried and that, gasped and all of this stuff. So it was really good. That's yeah. one of the things when Richard, when you say it's better than the stage play, cause I know like that song is in a different place in the play and yeah. they moved it into a different part in the movie and it works so much better um, on screen than it did on stage. Um, can I look ahead to Oscar buzz 2023 or so? What does this make us think about John Chu's wicked movie? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen Wicked, so I have like a real uh, uh, lack of knowledge here. I saw some interview with him, and he was like, "I just like this is like directing a musical like this is just like uh, like a pinnacle of my career." He's like always wanted to do it, you know. Um, and that ardency, that passion, is really felt in In the Heights. So I hope if he if he can continue that and find inventive, inviting ways um, to to stage Wicked, uh, great. But the the forever problem of that show is that that high note in Defying Gravity was written for Adina Menzel. <laughs> and only a few people can hit that. <laughs> Many have died trying. Um, so I don't know. I think I think that that cast, Chenoweth and Menzel, is so, you know, for people who care about Wicked, so infused in their brains um, that finding a different cast, if that's how they go, would be difficult. But well, you think we'll they might bring them back? I don't. Th- I think that there had been talk of that a few years ago, but I think that talk uh, now has passed. Yeah. You can't do that. that. I mean, it, it's about them going to college, right? right. Or like high school. <laughs> Col- they're they're yeah. very young. In, ha- have in the you movie not seen Firefly Lane, Katie? <laughs> Sarah Chalk and Catherine Heigl pull it off. <laughs> I mean, I've seen the Rent movie when uh, where that was uh, the 15 years ago and didn't work so well. Where the men stayed the same age, but they cast younger women. You mean that one? <laughs> well, no, I guess Menzel was in it, so never mind. But. It's Hollywood, baby. Yeah. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hillary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Okay, to our Oscar flashback portion of the show, Mike, we I sent a like, basically long list of somewhat at random just Oscar-adjacent movies that we haven't talked about before. And from this whole list, you picked All About Eve, which I was thrilled by because uh, who wouldn't want to talk about All About Eve? But why? Why was that the movie that you wanted to come on and look back at? Well, um, first of all, it's an amazing film uh, that I love and one of my favorites of all time. Also, uh, very early on in my Vanity Fair career, such as it is, I worked on an excerpt of a book about All About Eve by uh, Sam Staggs with my old boss, Wayne Lawson, who I believe came on this podcast to talk about Sunset Boulevard, Mm -hmm. which was All About Eve's um, rival at the Oscars in, uh, I guess, 1951, because the films both came out in 1950. And this was like like a really early thing that I remember working on uh, with Wayne. And Wayne was a very generous boss who involved me in every aspect of these things. And as was his want, he went through the whole book and basically pulled out every juicy piece and jammed it into this uh, excerpt, which you can find on our... um, on our site on archive.vanityfair.com. Uh, so, um, so it, it's just, I've always had a huge soft spot for the movie, you know, because of all the great backstory and just rereading that story. It's hilarious. It is it's such 
I, I think the term bitchy was dis, was invented to describe um, all of the stories about the back. <laughs> the back. Uh, I, apparently, uh, Betty Davis even started calling George Sanders the the bitch on on set. I mean, it's just like Celeste Holm, who I think was probably a pretty nice person, is just incredibly mean about everybody. She and Betty Davis hated each other. Um, Betty Davis. Celeste so Holm, who plays um, Karen, her best friend. Yeah, but Betty Davis and Ann Baxter did become friends later, but I think we're incredibly cruel. I mean, Betty Davis was just being a monster to everybody. By the way, she was 42 years old in this movie, which was uh, and and she's playing a 40 year old. And, you know, it was at a time when her career was basically, you know, she thought her career was over when she got the call from Daryl Zanuck. She thought it was a joke when she got the call from Daryl Zanuck. She thought it was somebody pranking her. And as a 46-year-old, I do find that kind of strange. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so, I mean, it's just a fantastic film. And, and even that kind of amazing moment, you know, the, the, the Fasten Your Seatbelts, it's going to be a bumpy night where she downs the martini. Um, you know, if you read the story, if you read the excerpt or read the book, um, you find out that, uh, that, you know, all the business she's doing physically, the delay, the martini, the shoulder swirl is all um, improvised by Betty Davis in the moment. So so the film, what's on screen is incredible. And then uh, what happened behind the scenes is really is really fun. You know, what's amazing about that moment, because there are some movie lines that like become iconic and like, it's in the movie itself. You're like, oh, OK, they didn't really know that was going to be it. But in that scene, like I think the camera moves to the staircase before she gets there and it's just like waiting for her to get there and deliver the line. <laughs> like it knows that she is about to knock it out. Um, and I mean, the, that's kind of the way the whole movie treats Buddy Davis is just like this force of nature that it has to to keep up with, um, which is what makes it what makes that performance so iconic. Yeah. One of the things that's so much fun about the movie is that it does feel like a real distillation of um of Betty Davis like she's 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 not playing herself but she is in some ways being herself she's channeling herself very heavily into that character and apparently you know another not to lean too heavily on all these anecdotes from the story but apparently the first time Celeste Holm walked onto the set uh she said good morning and and Betty Davis said, "Oh, brother, good manners," which is very similar to how <laughs> to their first encounter in the film. Oh and God. they hated each other from the jump. Um, and so, which of course they play they play good friends in the in the film. But but Betty Davis and and uh, Margot Channing are are th- there's a lot of similarities. And and what a character! What a what a person to sort of observe. And, and that's and then then there's the whole you know story, which I think is a fascinating story, and it's a fascinating story to to watch and think about in 2021, honestly. And it yeah. feels so modern. I mean, it, yeah. it's yes. such an edgy, wicked kind of story. I love when Addison Dewitt, uh, who I'm choosing to read, is sort of coded as queer, even though he's sort of nefariously predacious at the end of the movie. But he it seems almost <laughs> like obvious yeah. that he's coded a queer to the point that yeah. like at the very end where you're just like, wait a second, what do you want with yeah. this woman? <laughs> right. Um, yeah. He says to Marco Channing, you're maudlin and full of self-pity. You're magnificent. And if that is not the best distillation of a certain corner of like gay culture, <laughs> like it's so good. And it's like that line would be hilarious now. And yeah. if his, you know, in this not, you know, in, in the movie, the movie was made 71 years ago. It's just like, um, it really, really stands the test of time and maybe even has like ripened with with that age. 
Yeah. It's funny watching it. Um, and I was just remembering, I was like, of course Mike picked this movie. Like I was remembering us talking about Sunset Boulevard and it's just like such a, such an amazing thing that these two movies came out the same year. Mm -hmm. We're battling at the Oscars are so much about, you know, making art, making stories, being an actress, all this sort of stuff, being an aging actress. Um, it's like the, it's like the uh, Dante's peak volcano of its time. Um, but, uh, but I, I just, I love this movie. It's so good. And, um, I, what I was watching it, this is, this is like a multi-time rewatch for me. So I, I didn't have to like focus on every frame. I've seen it a bunch of times, but I was watching it on um, the Amazon platform and you know how they have like the x-ray trivia that sort of pops, pops up on the left-hand side. If you want it to, if you're watching it on Amazon, um, every like five minutes, there was another like, well, originally they wanted this actress. It was like every actress <laughs> under the sun was sort of considered for all of the roles, uh, in this film. And I was just like trying to imagine all the various different versions. Like my favorite bit was that Ann Baxter was cast because they thought she looked like Claudette Colbert. Cause at one point Claudette Colbert was going to play the Margot Channing. And it was sort of like, she would transform into her a la, you know, single white female sort of thing. And I was like, of course she does. She does look like Claudette Colbert. That's wild. Like that's wild that that's why she got that role. And then they changed, you know, then they cast Betty Davis. She looks nothing like Betty Davis is, is fascinating to me. So. And, and Claudette Colbert broke her back, which is why she couldn't oh make my it. God. And apparently that was the, that was the tell when Xana called her, she was putting him on just going, Oh yeah, whatever, darling, I'll do whatever you say. And then he said, well, look, we were going to give it to Claudette, but she broke her back. And Betty Davis was like, wait, this is Daryl Zanuck. Like, you know they're- <laughs> <laughs> Um, the part of it that made me think of Mike and not because of Mike's behavior, but I feel like when we talk about the Oscars, Mike, you've always been very good at being like, these people all hate each other. You still wanted to like talk about it on camera and get along so they can win an Oscar. And the scene where, um, <laughs> where Eve is giving her acceptance speech at the Sarah Citizen Society, which is a, just a perfect name for anything. And it cuts to, she's saying all these nice things about all these people who she's been screwing over for the entire movie. And you just see them like dying inside watching her speak. And she's like complimenting them effusively. And that, like you said, right, like it feels so modern. It just felt like watching a real Oscar acceptance speech. It makes you you wonder who hates the people they're thinking as much as Eve hates all of these people. Yeah. And right, as a story of female betrayal and and manipulation, it's it is really interesting. You know, it's not the sort of stereotypical story of a woman who seduces a man in order to get what she wants. She she's, you know, sidles up to a woman. It's a it's a different kind of platonic seduction of another woman. And it is, you know, as much as it's it's certainly, you know, a dim view of uh, of female behavior, but there's certainly a lot of female agency. I mean, I'm curious what you think, uh, Katie and Joanna watching it. But but I, I think I think it is it's a very human film. It's a very it's a film that really has a very clear eyed, if dim view of human nature. And, and it's all very recognizable, I feel like today. You know, it's not naive. It's it's quite it is edgy to to Richard's point, but it's not. It doesn't feel like um, vicious in in itself, right? It's sort of it's sort of observing this behavior, and even Addison Dewitt kind of can is a very problematic narrator, um, but is taking a clear eyed view of all this and acknowledging that everybody has serious flaws in this story. I think if I were to, you know if, if if we were to make all about Eve, which we should never do. To be clear, but if, if we were, and if I were to make, if we were going to do like a modern retelling, I would have a moment where Margot at the end sort of does a game recognize game sort of thing with, yeah. with Eve. I think that like casting Eve as some sort of like, 
scheming, manipulative, all this sort of stuff. It, it is. It's fun. It's interesting. She's 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 taking her career by the reins. That's interesting. All that sort of stuff like that. But I think to make her the villain eternally for these women, when like really, you know, Margot does her own machinations in, in her career. I think that would have been a moment that would have helped me feel like everyone is interested in sort of the ways in which women are, are forced to carve these paths for themselves sometimes, you know, and stuff like that. Um, you know, and the fact that this was written and directed by, uh, just Mankiewicz, um, you know, I, yeah, maybe, maybe one female voice on the script, a, a pass, but I, I like, I don't, <laughs> yeah. I, but, but it yeah. doesn't like, it doesn't offend me in any way. Yeah. I, I was struck, especially thinking about Sunset Boulevard, where you've got the kind of this older woman character who, you know, it's a very different kind of movie, but she's just so kind of grotesque in many ways. And you've got Margot, who behaves terribly. The, you know, Fast and the Seatbelt is Bumpy Night scene. Like, she is being bad to so many people around her. Um, but she kind of wins in the end. Like, it's it's kinder to her in the end than I remembered, where she's got her friends. She's got her, I guess they're married at that point. Like, Eve gets what she wants, but Margot doesn't have to lose everything as a result of it. And I appreciated that it, like, Margot was such an interesting character, but because she is messy and manipulative in her own way and selfish, um, but is deserving of the love that she has in her life. I, I like that as a as a landing spot there. And maybe this is being too forgiving from a certain from the uh, today's perspective. But like, I feel like that whole thing, the, the whole ways that these women are sort of forced, like you said, Joanna, to like socialize and and to strive, is kind of part of the satire. Like I think the movie feels very aware of that all this discussion about these great parts that this man has written for these women and and, and mm. all this stuff, I, I think it it's almost kind of commenting on the paucity of that stuff, that these few things they have to all kind of scramble for and, and you know, playing 20 years older than they, or, you know, younger than they are or whatever, all that, that kind of, all that tradition was because there was such limited space for these women. Um, maybe that was not the intention in 1950 when the movie was made, but like it reads like that now to some extent. I also think, you know, speaking of 1950, both of the films, Sunset Boulevard and All About Eve, are such interesting fulcrums between the 40s, between you think of the sort of dark, edgy, noiry, war-torn 40s and the sort of crazy kind of self-imposed naivete of the 50s where everybody was like, you know what, we're just going to put on a happy face and raise <laughs> our children and pretend that nothing, you know, everything's normal um, or everything's great. They, they they do seem to straddle those worlds a little bit. They're not like they're not super dark noirs exactly. I mean, Sunset Boulevard more so than this one. They, they they're kind of hinting at a future a fifties future while still basically being rooted in the forties past. I don't know exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean I mean Margot's at this banquet at the end, but also like she retreats. It seems from the, like. Margot doesn't come to rehearsals because she's busy with household matters. She gets married. Like she sort of like, you know, it's sort of like, okay, I'm done playing 20 year olds. That was causing me a lot of anxiety and stress. And yes, that's good. And I'm glad. And it seems like she's a good match, uh, you know, with her husband and all this sort of stuff like that. But like, you know, wouldn't you really want the ending to be like, and then they start writing roles for 40 year olds and Margot yeah, can play yeah. those <laughs> tremendously, you know? Yeah. Uh, there's a great line she says to the playwright, like, be a playwright with guts. Write me one about a nice, normal woman who just shoots her husband. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that I would. I, I think this is the only movie in Oscar history that had four actress nominations. Yep. Yeah. And they all canceled each other out and the other, none of them won, which is a sh great shame. But I think that it's really nice how you see these different perspectives. I think that Celeste Holm playing Karen, that character could be sort of 
wishy-washy and just sort of a tool for the, you know exposition or whatever but like home and and the script they they find a sort of aspect of where karen is located in this kind of ecosystem that yeah sort of offsets eve and 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 Margot, and I just think there's a nice balance to it. And the performances are all incredible. I mean, uh, you know, obviously, uh, Betty Davis gets the, like, now, the kind of lion's share of the, of the praise for that movie. But, like, you look at uh, what Ann Baxter does from the beginning to that wonderful last scene at the end, where all of a sudden her voice has totally changed. She's being more her real self. She's dropped an octave. She's smoking. She's mm-hmm. leaning back on the couch in a particular way. Like, there's such nuance to that performance um, that rises it way above you know just the kind of simple either villain or or ingenue role and i i think that there's a respect paid to the the roundness of all of these actresses talent um that maybe was rare for the time but i'm not as well versed in that era as i should be well when you know what's coming from the moment ann baxter appears on screen as eve harrington she is creepy as hell (laughs) <laughs> you know, it seems like Thelma Ritter, also nominated, yeah. um, it w- was the only is the only character who's sort of on to her at the beginning. Like, who is this? You know, wh- what's this one up to? B- by the way, the, the Oscar situation is not great. If you think about the fact that four actresses were nominated Ann Baxter, Betty Davis, Celeste Holm, Thelma Ritter, none won. Betty Davis ended up blaming George Sanders, who did win for best actor in supporting role. She says he got my Oscar. Um, (laughs) Joe Mankiewicz won Best Director and Best Writing Uh, The second year in the row, right? It was Joe Mankiewicz won Writer and Director two years in a row And the only person to ever do that, which is wild Incredible Wow. And then then the Best Sound Recording uh, was a guy Best Picture is Daryl Zanuck Uh, Best Costume Design The only woman to win an Oscar for this is Edith Head, who, by the way, only uh, designed Betty Davis's costumes, nobody else's, and uh, and split that (laughs) award with Charles Lemaire. But then in addition to all the women who didn't win for that, then also the film editor, Barbara McLean, was a woman she lost. Anyway, somehow... Uh, basically six guys won Oscars for this and only one woman did, even though there were a bunch of nominations. So that's what Addison DeWitt won in the end. (laughs) (laughs) He always does. Uh, Thelma Thelma Ritter playing this role that she like always plays, but is always welcome and perfect. Um, And this was her first nomination too, which I didn't realize because when she shows up in this, you're just like, Oh, it's Thelma Ritter doing a Thelma Ritter thing. But this was the beginning or it, you know, early enough in her career that it was her first nomination. Six or seven best supporting actress nominations. Yeah, I never won. Which for is like a, for yeah. just doing this, which is yeah. all you need to do because <laughs> yeah. it's great. We talked about. I, th- I feel like we must have talked about this when we talked about Sunset Boulevard. But this this Best Actress race is so infamous, right? Because Judy Holiday won, and um, and and the the idea is that they all cancel each other out. The idea is like if they if they were would run this now, probably what Betty Davis in leading and Baxter in supporting, and then sorry yeah. Celeste Home and Thelma Ritter like yeah. sort of would, would be how it would go and they'd probably all win you know so um you know it was, it was Godfather this is before why the we Godfather. have category fraud um <laughs> I was uh looking at this Guardian article from um 2017 that uh, is about or sorry 2019 about this um a West End production of All About Eve they did with uh Gillian Anderson and Lily James um as uh Margaret Channing and um and Eve um and kind of about how terrible it was but it also talked to the screenwriter of The Favorite about how this was an inspiration for The Favorite which you know I think is obvious there's a lot of things that it has inspired but it put it together for me which I had never thought about um the ending of The Favorite 
is the ending of All About Eve, where it's got the like the prism mirror of the rabbits, where Emma Stone like realizes she's in it, and at the end of All About Eve, you've got the the new usurper standing in front of the mirror. Um, I had just never put that together, and I thought it was exciting. And the favorite is so good in so many of the same ways that All About Eve is so good. Um, what else, guys? Well, we haven't mentioned that Marilyn Monroe's here <laughs> as another. She's like, so good. <laughs> she's great as another young woman trying to carve her path in a slightly like mousier way. Uh, mousy is a funny thing to say about Marilyn Monroe. Obviously, she's devastating, but she's like <laughs> she's just like a, a chess piece that Addison DeWitt is moving around the board, which is interesting. Well, and 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 in the Sam Stagg story, there's so many hilarious things about how everybody reacted to Marilyn Monroe, who pretty much was, you know, unknown going into this. And they all, she, I think, she left a big impression on everybody. I don't think the women, the other women, were terribly impressed by her in most cases. Um, but uh, it's it's yeah. I mean, she and she does. It does take you a minute, right? If it takes you like thirty seconds, and then you're like, "Holy smokes, that's Marilyn yeah. Monroe!" And then it's yeah. like, "Of course it is." Like I've, she, I've she always loved the up. energy of the um, that party scene later on, where they're all just kind of like drunk on the staircase. Like yeah. that just feels so much like being in a real party. We have to like step over people to get where you're trying to go, and like everyone's in the way. It's just it's such good staging and like really art authentic for that period in Hollywood. I really like how the movie is in dialogue with a tension that was existing at that time and and before, obviously, and since less so because movies won between movies and theater. Yeah. Mm. And that it's a movie that opens with a joke about the Academy Awards and is yes. very much about people flying off to from New, you know, leaving New York, which is if people live in New York. We're, you know, I'm, we're very used to the migrations westward. Um, <laughs> and so it, 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 it seems reverent of theater, but kind of like, but you're time, you're done, you know, like, so it's kind of a, a mordant take on that. Um, I love at the end when Eve is giving her speech and she's like talking about how she loves the theater. She's like, and even though I am going to film a movie next week, <laughs> uh, it's just this inevitability that I think the movie has so much kind of tragic fun with um, in a way that like makes it like probably one of the best movies, if not the best movie ever made about a particular conflict within show business well mm-hmm. i love i love um gary merrill as bill uh saying you know you don't want to know what the theater is the theater is a flea circus like that's a great little speech <laughs> yeah. stuck in there in and, a movie uh, that, that television is always on. auditioning <laughs> that's yeah. all television is <laughs> or whatever yeah yes yes um I love Gary Merrill in this, actually. This is like the first time I've really paid attention to his performance. And that I think this is also the first time that I understood that they, he and Betty Davis were in a real life affair. Eventually got married, right? Yeah. Uh, and divorced. And named their daughter Margot. <laughs> Wild. Okay. They both kind of had to shuffle off spouses uh, early on in filming. <laughs> But he is just, but like he is just staring at her through most of the scenes that he has with her. Like when he's not fighting with her, like that that when they're at the restaurant um, and they're the they're engaged, and the four of them are sitting at the table. It's mostly Margot talking. It's mostly him just staring at her, besotted. And I was like, this man really is just like in okay. it. Um, I'm sorry to quote this from the story, but yeah. he is quoted saying, "I walked around with an erection for three days." Okay, <laughs> that's, in the article. That's it. <laughs> that's a less charming way so to your, put it, your, but uh, your powers of observation are acute. Uh, that's something people would say on the record once upon a time. <laughs> um, but I also, to, to your point about Hollywood, my favorite bit about Hollywood is the, is the movie star who shows up, shows up to the party that you never see, but they just see her, they follow her sable coat up and down the stairs, basically. Yeah. Um, that's a great, that's a great little bit um, that I love. It's just, it's like they thought of every smart thing you can do in a movie and managed to do it all so at once. Smart. It's, yeah. ah, you can't make them like that anymore because it just doesn't happen that like, 
no movie like this exists in any period of Hollywood. Guys, when are we going to get Mank 2 about Jason <laughs> making this movie? What did he win for the year before? Sorry to be Oscar ignorant. Oh, I just looked it up. It's um a movie not nearly as famous. Oh, as it's All oh, it's Eve. Letters from Three Women. Yeah, yeah, that yes. movie kind of sucks actually. But yeah, um, I've never seen it. Uh, it's, it's a letter to three s- wives. Yeah, Jean Crane. Uh, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of sappy, but um, yeah, make two about the making of All About Eve. Let's let's make it happen. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would not want an All About Eve remake, but a making of All About Eve. Yeah. That, that's I mean, I guess that that's kind see. of what I mean. Feud was not. Feud it was about two. yeah, Feud two. Yeah, <laughs> All About Eve. Mm. Yeah. Um, Thank you, Mike, for picking yeah, this movie. Yeah, seriously, uh, this was thanks for such letting a... me talk about it. I love this. I love this film, and it's it's really fun. I do suggest going back and reading. I hope I haven't put anyone off the uh, article with my quotations from it. But <laughs> no, it is, no, uh, I, I have it open right now. I'm going to read it <laughs> as soon as we're done. Oh, another fun fun fact uh, is that Marilyn Monroe was presented at that Oscars. I think she presented the costume award to Edith Head. Um, and that was her only Oscars she ever appeared at. Wow. Was the 1951 Oscars. Um, but yeah. And also that they had costume design black and white at the time. Like mm-hmm. they were they were giving separate uh, costume awards for color and black and white, which is wild and fun. I mean, Betty Davis's costumes in this movie are incredible. That, that party I mean, dress Edith is iconic. Had, yeah. How many Oscars has Eve had? She must have so many Oscars, but she deserved that one for sure. Yeah, I mean, just fur coats could be used for such dramatic effect. You know, <laughs> don't you haughty, miss them? <laughs> but also protective. I mean, obviously, it would have to be faux fur now, of course. But like, it maybe just want one of those huge, just wrap wrap around kind of like cloaks that are just they're such great props in this movie and in other things in the opening when celeste home like walks into a rainy little alley and she just sort of like tucks her fur coat up around her her neck and it's a nice contrast to ann baxter's like dumpy little raincoat and it's, it's in like, like a flasher's trench coat <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect hiding in an alleyway in times square yeah. uh edith had one eight Oscars for best costume design uh, more than any other woman. Also, she won an Oscar for uh, Sabrina, even though uh, Givenchy designed like most of the gowns. <laughs> so she got credit for it anyway. Edith wow. had some real power right. in the 50s. Love it. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Okay, now we're going to share my interview with Jimmy Smits, who is part of the large and wonderful ensemble cast of In the Heights. We spoke the day that he had gotten his uh, star on the Walk of Fame in a virtual ceremony. And I was completely uh, stunned by the story he told where the emotional resonance for him that his star was near Gregory Peck's because he had been mentored by Gregory Peck when they worked together on a film in the 80s alongside Jane Fonda. Um, And the conversation really just went to some wonderful places from there. So let's hear that interview. I wanted to start by asking you what they've got you doing on the promo tour for this, because I know you're traveling, like it's all like full blown back in business on a promo circuit for In the Heights, right? It's a little, it's a little pulled back. I mean, more Zoom than we've, you know, virtual uh, recordings that that we've ever done uh, before. But 
so you you know you will spend time in wherever your Zoom area is, uh, you know, just doing like full days of different regions or countries, um, different mm-hmm. different markets, I guess you would say. But but we did we do, you know, they they were asking what was our comfort level in terms of. Uh, getting on planes and stuff and it's even it changes every week so last week we did miami and uh you know they were asking about the southwest and we're going back east to do a you know do do tribeca and uh then that's exciting but yeah uh, but you do feel you do get a, a, a bit of a sense that things are starting to open back up and uh Quiet Place Two did really well this this past weekend, right? Yeah, uh, people yeah. People are going going to the movie theaters, even if the, even if they're doing like this a little bit. I'm <laughs> putting my hands out, doing a social distance yeah. thing. Um, and you had a um, you had a virtual Walk of Fame ceremony like today, as as we're talking. Yeah, it was exciting, exciting, humbling. You know, all all those words that you that that sound corny, but are true. You know, uh, but and actually. Though in terms of in terms of me, this whole the virtual concept worked out great because I would have yeah. been I would have been no I would have been mortified to have to actually ask people to come and speak on my behalf and <laughs> think about getting up on a podium and thinking about doing fan club alerts which I don't have a fan club you know it's like <laughs> I, I don't do that so it's I, I wouldn't I would have been I would have been that that would have had me mortified so this was like totally chill and we did it all virtually and we went to the we went to the place and did a couple of pictures with my my loved ones and my team and uh, the photographer and the homeless people that were in tents not too far away and that was that's hollywood boulevard it was all good it was all it, it, it for me that was perfect yeah what did it feel like to see your star i mean you've seen your name in lights in other ways but the the star is definitely a symbol it, it was more about w- where the placement was that really mm. uh, touched me because it was, it is on Hollywood and Gower, and that's where the easternmost part of the the walk begins, and it mm-hmm. was where the first installation was in 1960, I think it was, or 58, of Stanley Kramer, the director, and mm-hmm. and then it happens to and it happens to be. Uh, very in close proximity to somebody that I got to work with and has been has influenced me and kind of mentored me in a way with Gregory Peck and uh, wow so that meant a lot and then the Hollywood yeah. sign is there and Sunset Gower Studios is on the other side looking south where I've worked and did some I don't know work that I felt uh, connected with Dexter and how to get away with murder there was like good good vibes around there so mm-hmm. that was for me that was perfect Wait, can you tell me more about uh, getting mentored by Gregory Peck? That's uh, what a what a mentor to have. Yeah, well, I mean, unbeknownst to him, I was <laughs> I was I was fortunate enough to be uh, a part of a film early on uh, when I got here to California that um, Jane Fonda shepherded and produced and starred in, and uh, actually, the first rehearsals were with Burt Lancaster that I, I mm. rehearsed with for a month and change with Burt Lancaster, but there were insurance issues and he had uh, he was he had declining health, but he was up for it. He he was totally up for it. But then Gregory mm-hmm. stepped in and, and that for me was I, I can't even begin to tell you, Katie, it was just uh, just we were in the deserts of Mexico and he kind of helped me 
or he righted my my ship in terms of mm. what how we were going to navigate the waters of this business and um, and everybody chooses their own path and you know no aspersions on whatever choices that you make but uh, we talked a lot about uh, the work and uh, you know your batting averages and persevering and your instrument and uh, how the artist can use their platform in terms of social, you know, your social voice. And um, yeah, so a lot, just a lot of things made sense to me. Um, things that I f was, was kind of feeling, but I don't know, the old, it was a little bit of old Hollywood that really made sense to me in a lot of, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I was just thinking about how, you know, the industry that he came up in is so different from the one we have now and probably and so different from the one that would have been in, in the 80s. I'm, you know, looking at Wikipedia that you guys would have worked together on Old Gringo in 1989. So, like, do you keep that perspective of old Hollywood with you now, even though the industry is so different? Do you think that those lessons still apply to the way the industry works now? Yeah, I mean, the, certainly the, there's a resurgence of activism uh that, that we have going on right now that uh, I, I think is great and needs to be kept on going. Um, and certainly that time period in the late 80s, that was, you know, that there was this whole kind of rock the vote kind of thing that was going on. And mm -hmm. I, I was, you know, I was doing a lot of that as well. But uh, I don't know, there was just something about the camaraderie and the, it seemed like the values and that bespoke more of the craftsmanship. Maybe it had to do with the studio system because mm. that, that kept people in check even though there were, you know, parts of that that were kind of sketchy, sketchy you know, when you think <laughs> about it. But, uh, but you know, the sense of, 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 of this is a craft and this is a toolbox that I have that I bring uh -huh. to the table besides your talent and whatever special thing that you have or have nurtured and um, and I don't know it just it kept me in check I think so do you try to pass that on now is uh do you get to mentor uh, younger actors now to pass that onward so I'm not a big social media person um, <laughs> remedial <laughs> would be the word <laughs> but uh but and I see the value of it I totally see the value in terms of like using it to to be a voice in terms of a, a platform. But, you know, like anything, you can see. Pe but people, you make your own choices in terms of how you pursue this business. For me, education was the path that kind of presented itself. You know, I, mm -hmm. I was in college and I, I had a professor in undergraduate school that kind of said, uh, you know, you, you have shown this interest in the classics and you probably could go to LA and do the crook of the week on a TV show or, but I think that, you know, you should think about continuing and applying to some graduate schools. And that seemed like the right thing to do to me. And whether it had to do with the fact that the parents didn't really understand the whole entertainment thing and it was kind mm -hmm. of like a safety valve for them. Oh, so that means that you'll be able to be a professor in college. <laughs> you get a degree in something at least. But, but, but for me, it was, it was the handle to grasp onto in terms of filling that toolbox full of uh, necessities that you could pull out and use and mm -hmm. using uh, the education system and, and literature, the love of literature, 
to be a real springboard. Whether you were going to get the chance to use it in the professional arena, there's so much other things that are involved that you're not in control of. But uh, preparedness meets opportunity, and hopefully the preparedness gives you a leg up. I mean, you've, you've worked on massive film productions before that are, you know, maybe visual effects heavy. So a lot of, you know, you can be brought in for your one part. But on a musical, I always imagine that you have to be on set a lot to be part of those sequences. Like when you're on there, you know, shooting um, Carnival de Barrio, like that's like hundreds of people who are all there, like all those scenes. I mean, do you just have a lot of time to kind of be in the world of it to get musical numbers like that nailed because there's so many moving pieces in it? Or is it... Um, is it short, a shorter commitment than I think? The, no, no. Those days were, were full, full days uh, and not a, a whole lot of time to shoot, to shoot that sequence. So they mm-hmm. were, I also go back to the 96,000 sequence, which was done in, in Highbridge Pool, which is like not really a lot of shooting days, two days in terms of the, uh, the youngins. Um, <laughs> I mean, that group, I, I saw, I actually was able to see that group really congealed, the, the whole mm-hmm. idea of the ensemble really become very strong. And they were depending on each other. And, uh, you know, there were strong suits on, on, on different levels and they, people were depending on each other and holding on to each other. And, and, it, and it, it transfers, I think, not only to uh, good technical work, but there was... Just emotionally, I, I can see with the two, uh, Anthony and Melissa's relationship in the film and Corey and, and Leslie, mm-hmm. I, can, I can see the chemistry that I attribute to the work, the hard work that they put in prior to, to the filming. I mean, you're not the one doing like backflips into the pool or anything, but I, I assume that the level of, you know, rehearsal choreography for you is pretty involved too, to be part of something this big. Uh, yeah, I mean, that wasn't heavy lifting vocal. It's one of the reasons why I got the job, probably, you know, it wasn't. Uh, and, I, and I pitched myself, you know, because I wanted to contribute in another way with regards to the, the quote unquote dramatic scenes. So, hey, it's my violin. I was in heaven. I was in heaven to be <laughs> doing, uh, to be working that way and, uh, you know, revving up all cylinders. It was... Wonderful. And I'm so thankful and grateful that, that it worked out. So you, you said you pitched yourself for the part, like you came to them and said you wanted to be in it? Yeah, I mean, I, I knew Lynn and I had, I've, I've been aware of the musical since it's off-Broadway uh, incarnations. And I've known so many of the people that, that have been involved in, in the show. But uh, this is like a hardcore, this is like a musical. So I had to... <laughs> oh, so you had to be like, I, you know, make sure you had the, the skills to bring to the table? Yeah, I mean, convince them that I could, that for the limited, well, one of the reasons when I, I had read this new version, new draft of the, of the script that Kiara and, and Lynn collaborated on that opened the script up and, you know, addressed some things that made the film, I think, resonate a little bit more because it was, you know, two, from 2010 to 2020, right? It's, yeah. Stuff has happened socially, right? So, and, and they were able to address that in a way. And because of that, you know, things got cut and characters got cut and songs got cut. And I said, huh, I mean, uh, yeah, I missed that particular song. But I think I guess I can try. I can work my ass off to try to at least carry a carry a tune. And 
Yeah, because your character has a huge song in the stage show, and I, I, I really see the reason that it's not part of the movie. You know, I think that the structure. I mean, of it, works. it might not have been part of the movie, but it was part of my daily. Uh, mm. Yeah, I listened to my to my boy Carlos Gomez on the on the Broadway soundtrack because wow. that song that song is just like uh, the subtext of that particular character. Mm-hmm. It, it it just worked out. Yes, I had to pitch myself and I talked to, I had conversations with John at first and uh, we talked about Crazy Rich Asians and uh, his feeling about M- Michelle Yu's contribution to uh-huh, that, that uh-huh. particular film. And I kind of paralleled that in a way. And that's that's what I felt like I wanted to, you know, to bring to the party and... Um, and then I had to had had to had to fly into New York and talk to Lynn and Kiara and you know it's it was a, it was a process. That character is an interesting parallel because I know exactly what you mean when you said that, but also her character in Crazy Rich Asians is really scary. And you, you know your character is a challenge. You know you have this challenging relationship with your daughter, but it's not quite the same imperious force. So what's the what's the parallel that you saw that you really wanted to work with there? Uh, you know the delivery system is a musical, and there's joy and. You know, there's all that happening, but I just wanted to make sure that in in those particular scenes where when the family values were coming up with the dynamics of one generation to another and the expectations, I, I felt like I, I understood it because I, I've, I've lived it. You know, mm-hmm. I've, uh, I've been on both sides. I've, I've, I've lived it as someone who is the first in uh, his extended family to go to college and what that pressure kind of felt like. And, uh, and I know from, you know, feeling the way I do about education and trying to instill that in other people and in my own kids, you know, and how sometimes that can go awry as well. You know? mm-hmm. uh, so I, I felt like I had a kind of understanding about that. And, uh, and, and I just wanted to make the scenes emotionally resonate as if it was a drama um, mm-hmm. in those, in, in those places. And that I, is that where the listening to the song for the Broadway production comes in? Because, you know, on film, you can convey in your eyes what that song conveys on stage. Like you've got the power of your face more than a Broadway show does. I can I can see where the power of that song comes in, even if it's not on the screen. Yeah. A lot of actors do this. I, I, there's something about music that, you know, it's like the, the summer song that you listen to, you know, every every summer of your life that you you can hear a note, notes from those songs and it can, it can take you back to that time in yeah. the 80s or 70s when you were wherever you were. Um, and yeah, so music can affect me that way. And I've often, you know, it keeps me in my zone. And uh, so that became part of my playlist for the character. Yeah. What else was on the playlist? A lot of the, bra- the Broadway show and uh, yeah, stuff from, from, from Puerto Rico. Well, I know a lot of people who saw this movie last February when they had started showing it to people and then, of course, had to not talk about it for over a year because the movie got you know, held back. How has it felt this past year, kind of knowing what you had made, having seen maybe some of it and having to keep it to yourself for through this, such a long, terrible year? Oh, Katie, I, I got to tell you, I never got to see. I know there, there are a couple of journalists that I've talked to during during this whole junket uh, that had seen the uh, had seen a version of it. But you hadn't seen it. Oh, no, no, absolutely not. All I saw was that teaser I just referred to a wow. little while ago. Just like, um, it was uh, November. Mm-hmm. It was November or December that we had a, a, 
a trailer a teaser release party in New York. Yeah. TikTok, <laughs> something. And then <laughs> next thing you know, there was a pandemic and yeah. talking about movies might never be the same again. Yeah. Were you anxious to, to, to have to wait though? Like thinking it was going to come out last summer and then having to wait a whole year or have you just been happy to wait until we could see it in theaters? Well, the universe aligned for hmm. the film, I think. But what happened in the ensuing 14 months was wacky and, and tragic on so many, so many levels that we as a society have had to contemplate um, medical issues, but so much other stuff has happened. You know, this whole social dynamic that we have been dealt with, with regards to politics and uh, the assault on politics and um all these social issues, Black Lives Matters, LGBTQ and immigration issues, all these things that we've had to kind of during that have had that have happened during this lockdown has made us hopefully think about things, reckon with things. And uh, and I just hope that as we come out now, the film to me is like it's going to be a little bit of joy, you know, mm -hmm. rainbow after the after the storm. Um, in terms of being open, open, opened up and available to, with regards to the film, uh, something that might be viewed as a specific lens of a community of people, but by the same token, and because of the delivery system of being a musical, maybe more accessible because music does what it does, giving the joy that is able to be conveyed through that medium, through that genre as well. So a universal joy for even if you've never been to Washington Heights. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Because those themes again are are community and what what does home mean and family, all those things. Yeah. Um, so I promise uh, your publicist, Carol, that I wouldn't talk about people talking about Oscars for In the Heights because it's too early for that, although we are an awards-obsessed uh, podcast. But I know that you are an Oscar voter. You're an Academy member. And when I have talked to Carol about, uh, you know, kind of her process of voting for the Oscars, she's told me that you're a very diligent Oscar voter, that you really pay attention, that you really take your ballot seriously. Um, so wait, how what is the process like of, of voting for the As an Oscar voter, How what is it like getting that kind of power? And how was it this past year with... Uh, you know, having access to all the movies through the pandemic. A power, um, well, <laughs> it is a power. A, a voice, a voice. <laughs> um, I have, I have a room. You, know, you could say I'm a hoarder, but I, I still have <laughs> the videotapes that from the, the Academy tapes from '93 in a wow. room. Wow. Yeah, and then we, when we went to DVDs and Blu-rays, and I, I, you're supposed to give them. I, I had. The, <laughs> Working heavy I, with my assistant, I was like, "What are we going to do with them? Call the academy and ask them what they." And it's like you just got to throw them away. It's, throw them away. It's, <laughs> anyway, um, the present system in terms of the streaming thing is—I actually, I'm, well, I'm tactile. I still have news. I still get the New York Times and, and the LA Times because it's the tactileness of yeah, it. So yeah, I, I like being able to have the DVDs, but. Um, and the present system in terms uh, in terms of the uh, streaming, uh, I'm, I'm not crazy about the fact that they know exactly what you watch. Oh, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. And how you watch it. And if you go back or, you know, that to me is a little invasive. But um, 
But yeah, you, I try to be as I try to be as diligent as possible. I, I haven't been on any. I I, I was going to be on a panel this past year, but then some work came up and didn't let me do that. But I yeah, I try to watch as much as as much as possible. And do you feel like the Oscars are getting it right more these days after all the changes we've been going on in the past five years? Are you are you happy with how that's all going? In terms of inclusivity, yeah, and you know, like opening up the you're ranks. Talking to to somebody who wants to, you're talking to somebody who has been like saying inclusivity for. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, they finally listen to you. Well, I don't know about listening to me, but uh, <laughs> I'm happy that that people's ears and eyes are opening up a little bit to a more diverse world. Yeah. Um, okay, last question for you. I think in, in the Heights is going to be the first movie I go back and see in a theater. I saw it at home on a link, but I'm going to go back and see it again in the big screen. Have you gone back to the movies yet? Have you seen anything on the big screen since the pandemic? Uh, no, I want. I actually want to save this for like to go. We're going back to New York and uh, to do the Tribeca thing, and it's going to be the first time I'm going to be seeing my immediate family in quite some time. Wow. So I, I want to be able to share that with them. And so you'll all watch the movie together at the Tribeca screening? Yeah, that and maybe a subsequent screening afterwards. Because That sounds great. Tribeca is going to be very packed. <laughs> Are you excited to return to the big screen, though? for to, to see not yourself on the big screen, but to watch a movie on a big screen? Oh, absolutely. 100%. And 100% and, and uh, because, that, you know... You guys talk about this all the time. There's, there's something about the communal experience of being in the theater, a dark theater, and you know, going to that place and and feeling the energy of an audience. Uh, it's what we feel in the theater and the on the stage when you know the energy between an actor and an audience on stage is incredible because yeah. it's, it breathes. And so, as an audience member, it, it, it's ex, it's exciting to be transformed in in that kind of way as well. And now we're going to share an interview that our colleague Sonia Soraya did with Ethan Hawke, who plays John Brown on the miniseries The Good Lord Bird. Uh, she had interviewed him before. Sonia was kind of a real um, champion of this show. Uh, so she got to catch back up with him as the Emmy campaign continues for the show. So let's listen to Sonia talk to Ethan Hawke. You've been doing uh, a lot of talking about John Brown, haven't you? Woo! I love it. <laughs> I love it. Well, you've been working on this. Uh, you've been working on this guy for so long. I mean, it just must be really interesting to revisit and revisit. You were so immersed in his character, and now you're kind of getting to say goodbye. Yeah, that's well said. I mean, it happens a couple times if you're lucky in a career to have such a long relationship to a character. I mean, to, to fall in love with the book, to read it, to meet the author, to decide to try to make a film of it, to embark on it, to have it happen, to create it at a moment of time where I feel like this subject matter, social justice, the DNA of this country, it's on the top of people's minds and they want to be thinking about it. And this story, the story of Onion, John Brown speaks to this moment. And, and you know, I poured years of my life into this performance. So it, it's been kind of a joy to talk about it. it. It also has been a letting go of the character. I've become, I've become the actor talking about having done it rather than it being inside of you, you know? And so it's, in a way, it, it's, I was going to say it's kind of part of the letting go, 
normally you have these wonderful experiences where you get to go to a premiere and you share it with people and you go out afterwards and you talk about it and you do Q and A's and rooms full of theaters. And, and that's part of the letting go process. Now it happens in podcasts and over zoom and it, it feels surreal in a way. This is a weird time for everything, but I do feel like a, a good Lord bird came at a good time because the conversation around around history really changed, you know? And I think um, bringing John Brown into our current narrative, um, I, I feel like your ti- the timing of this miniseries was so impeccable just because where I feel like we're finally unearthing some of this stuff and talking about some of this stuff. But it has got to be so weird to not be able to do a single premiere so you don't get to see an audience reacting to you coming into the screen saying, I am Osawatomi John Brown. <laughs> you know, I really, I really feel for Joshua Caleb Johnson, who plays, you know, our young hero, because those experiences of feeling how an audience relates to your work has been so valuable to me in my life. Because, you know, when you're doing it on film, it's this abstract ghost cloud imagination of what the audience is. It's not real. There's this camera there and you're imagining the audience. You're imagining talking to them, but you don't get to see it work until you're screening for a group of people. You don't get to see, does, does that get a laugh? Doesn't it? Yeah, that's strange. What was it like working with Joshua? It's always interesting working with young people. And by interesting, I mean dangerous. Because, you know, when the hero of the movie is a young person, you kind of know that the movie will only be as good as they are. Mm. Uh, You you know, uh, would E.T. be E.T. without Henry Thomas? No. Uh, And I remember the first time I met Joshua you know, something in my spine, I just knew he was going to be the person for us. He would be our guide to watch him learn over six months. I mean, the wonderful thing about, I'd never made a limited series before mm-hmm. and it's a seven hour movie, right? So it's almost like three films in an ordinary experience to watch Joshua go from his first day to his last day. By the time we were doing the scene where Joshua visits me in the prison cell the day before John Brown is hung. Uh, I could just feel his growth as a performer, as a young person, watching him evolve became kind of a journey for all of us adults. You know, it's like watching your quarterback really learn how to play and, and take off and make decisions on his own and thrive. Um, When did you read the James McBride book that gave you the thought of adapting this and how long has John Brown been in your head as, as a character that you've been working on? I really didn't know much about John Brown. I, I kind of had a vague tutorial about Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass. And I knew that John Brown was kind of a part of it. But growing up in Texas, my first thought when I thought of John Brown was that he was insane. I mean, I think that, that's, that's what I'd been told as a young person. So that was in the back of my brain. And I was doing a movie, I was doing Magnificent Seven. And it was a very interesting moment in my life, in the nation's life, where I was playing a Confederate soldier. And the backstory that Denzel and I'd had in this movie was that Denzel had saved me from a prisoner of war camp. And that 
you know, he had saved me with this line, the war is over and it's time to forgive. And we became friends. And that's the, our, like, you know, our secret backstory as actors. But so there I am, I'm learning my lines. And in the scene that I had to play with Denzel, uh, my character is running away from the fight. He's just, the, the PTSD from the war is too intense. And I say to him, the war is not over. It goes on and on and, and it's never going to end. And he's, cowering and running away from the fight. Okay, so I'm learning these lines in the car on the way to set. And on the talk radio program where I was driving to Louisiana, they were arguing about their right to hang the Confederate flag over the Capitol. I think they were talking about South Carolina, not Louisiana, but anyway. Uh, and I, I went to my dressing room and I started putting on this old Confederate soldier with these lines, the war's not over, running through my head and realizing that it, it's not over. It hit me with a kind of force that it doesn't normally. And I, I went out and I did this scene. The camera operator leaned over to me and said, man, you should play John Brown. And I said, what makes you say that? He goes, I'm just reading the best book. It's called The Good Lord Bird. I'm like, and I remember the, the title fascinated me. I couldn't make sense out of the title. I was like, what does that mean? The Good Lord Bird. And he said, it's when you see a a bird that's so beautiful and you just say, good Lord, that's a good Lord bird. And, and I just laughed and I, the title somehow ingrained itself in my brain. And I went home and I ordered the book and I was reading it and I just started laughing my ass off. And my wife was like, what are you reading? And I told her and she said, but isn't that about John Brown? And I said, yeah, this guy has performed a miracle, meaning James McBride. He's allowing us to look at the deepest wounds, that the, some of the deepest wounds that this country has, some of the most hurtful crimes in the DNA of the building of this nation. But he's doing it with such love and wit and silliness and strangeness that you can actually hear it. Because I think so much of the subject matter of human bondage and human trafficking and is so painful. There's so much shame involved about this crime that it's, it's very hard to look at. But the problem is if we don't look at it, we don't really acknowledge, you know, the zoning of this country, the education of this country, the ways in which we're taught to think. And, and this book had a lot to offer and it did it with so much love that I just, I, it was that feeling where I just wanted to give the book to everybody I met. You know, I wanted to order 50 copies and give it out as Christmas presents. And my wife said, why don't we make it into a movie? And I was like, nah, you could never do it. it it's too big. And she was like, Ethan, it's a limited series. Like you're so stuck <laughs> in that you're stuck in the nineties. We could do it. We could have a, a canvas this big. And so we went and met McBride and, we started this journey. Uh, do you remember about when that was? I think 2016. That's cool. Yeah. Well, it's something like this has to percolate for a long time. Um, but I, I love that. And you've touched on some of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, because I think one of the things that really got me about the series and your performance in it is how funny it is, how much of a sense of humor the whole show has 
I was just rewatching the first episode where John's um, picked up the bunny and is like holding the bunny really close to his face and says, do you have a fire in your heart for justice? And, you know, you sort of seeing him at a distance and Onion's looking over at him and he's talking to someone else and they're like, yeah, the old man is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) And I think um, I think there is something really necessary about seeing um the full spectrum of humanity in these moments and not just focusing on the brutality something that we've seen come up in some conversations around other shows other movies is um how much the nauseating pain uh reliving it or re recreating it can actually create quite a painful viewing experience so i think there's something very um not accessible, which makes it sound sort of limited, but accessible in a good way about how um, how funny and engaging these characters are in the midst of what they acknowledge as an atrocity. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really a razor's edge, right? Because if you don't talk about the painful things of life, they can't heal. And if you do talk about them, it's incredibly hurtful. And sometimes it feels not helpful because it feels like it's you know, it's like peeling off scabs. Um, so I, th- I believe that humor is a wonderful tool. I understand that it's a very multidimensional experience. And it, it's, it's, I'll talk about that moment with the bunny for a second, because I, <laughs> I find that moment, <clears throat> that, that moment was an improv, but it came out of one day I was driving to work and my phone rang and it was McBride. And he said, you know, something that's been really bothering me is I never got into the book how much John Brown loved animals and how much animals love John Brown. And I was like, why is this important? He's like, he, he said, you know, it's something about understanding the fullness of God's universe, of this garden that we live in and the absolute silliness of the way we treat each other. And yeah, you can use the word silly or you could use the word horrible, right? I mean... But he he went on to say how important it was in casting the white racist characters not to put horns on their head. Um, Because if they have horns in their head, then the the suffering isn't real. Like white people don't have horns. These are, these guys, these women, they love their parents, they love their children, they love their animals, and they believe that it was okay to enslave another part of humanity. That's hard to wrap your brain around. It's kind of easier to say, it's evil. It's, it's all evil. And, and that was where <clears throat> we were talking about the character of Chase that ends up being Steve Zahn. And McBride was like, make sure you cast Chase as someone you love. Cast the best person you know to play that racist. And I thought, oh, I'll cast Steve Zahn. He said, like, and, and so hopefully we are born into a chain of dominoes that were falling before we were born. And yes, we don't need to participate in the darkness, but we're not, we don't bear the responsibility alone. And I think if you can free yourself of that shame, then you can start to free yourself to act better. That the shame isn't helpful. Um, it, you don't have to have it, you don't have to carry it all. And I think John Brown paves a portrait of a, of a person that you can see, oh, I don't know. It, it, these are, in a way, I almost feel like it's like, using Oscar Schindler to talk about, to talk about uh, the Holocaust. You know, it's like, it's a person you can kind of bear to look at. 
If you just made a movie about the realities of Auschwitz, you cannot watch it. But if you if you talk about Oscar Schindler's journey, it, it's a window that can frame things in a way that a human being can receive it. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I mean, what's interesting about John Brown is that, um, and I remember we talked about this before, people thought he was absolutely bonkers when he was alive like not just not just in a talking to rabbits way but in a oh he thinks <laughs> my point about that is i said i, I say he talked to rabbits i didn't say the rabbits talked back so, uh... <laughs> um but just that he you know he believed women should vote and had equal rights um he he believed in freeing the slaves they they used that as proof of his insanity in his trial that he thought women should vote can you Imagine what a lunatic he was. <laughs> I mean, it's it's interesting how prescient he was. And even now, I feel like we are not fully ready for John Brown, which is this funny thing. Like, we're still we're still in the war, sort of, to, to the metaphor you were sort of using before, which is that, like, we're barely able to keep up with his clarity of vision, um, even now. And I think that is such an interesting... I don't know. It creates for such an interesting, like historical way to way to move into the past. You talked about Schindler before. Schindler changed his mind, right? He he sort of he was going along with everything. John Brown was a visionary right from the start. Yeah. I don't. It's it's sort of extraordinary. You can't understand John Brown, I think, without thinking a little mystically. Uh, meaning, I think his primary relationship was to his maker. Um, he was a very, very religious person and a little bit like Sojourner Truth or Harriet Tubman, they were able to operate outside the framework of society because they didn't believe in the framework of society. They believed in a higher calling and they saw themselves as fitting into that box, not the United States of America's box. He was fitting into the a child of the divine, right? And so uh, to him, it was obvious that men and women were equal. It was obvious to him that the Native Americans needed to be treated better and that these reservations were disaster. He just started with the abolitionist movement because it was the most egregious um, in his experience. Something that also helped me kind of understand what a different level he was on was just how much tragedy he witnessed in his yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. So many of his children dying in front of him. He had twenty. He had twenty-one children. Is that yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And like buried so many of them and his wife. Like just his wealth is grief, as as you say in the show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's the that's the funny line that that we really wanted to get in the show is that you know. My wealth is grief, and about how wisdom is often derived through great pain. You know, I mean, if one of the fascinating things about reading Nelson Mandela's book or anything, you're like, "Wow, this guy suffered!" Like, you don't you don't get that wise by accident. You get that wise by surviving unbelievable pain, and and that's where the certitude of Harper's Ferry comes from. It's just he doesn't want to live in a world where human equality is disrespected. And so when people would say to him, don't you know you got your sons killed? It, you know, there's these letters from him in, in prison. He's like, I'm proud of my boys. I'm ashamed of slavery. I'm proud of my boys. They, most people don't die for anything. My boys died for something. He had the, a level of certitude that most of us can't really wrap our brains around. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember, I think you put this on your Instagram that you, um, you thought about reaching out to Jeff Bridges to play the role and then you realized you could play him. <laughs> I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. Well, the life of an actor is very weird, you know, because you, you, when I first read the book, I thought that I would be right for Owen Brown because I kind of, in my mind, I'm still 32, you know? <laughs> you know, I read, I think, yeah, I can play that part. And then you realize, oh, wait, I'm 50. I can play, I can play the old man. And uh, it's a little bit like King Lear. You know, if you're going to play one of these big time older man parts, you have to be young enough that you can still hop on horses and throw a sword <laughs> around and chase people down a battlefield and but be old enough to understand the crisis and the the depth of of the suffering that's going on it's an interesting journey from gen x heartthrob i think that's fair to say gen x heartthrob (laughs) to a civil war militant abolitionist is there a connection there or is it just uh just what happened if there's a connection it's about how much people don't really understand the life of a performer. You know, when I did Dead Poet Society for five years, I got offered parts where I played privileged prep school kids, you know? Then you do Reality Bites and you're the Gen X heartthrob. And then you do Training Day and then you get offered a ton of cop pictures. And then you do Boyhood and you get offered a bunch of dad parts, you know? And (laughs) we have this ability to want to put every person we meet in a box about who they are. And of course, who I really am is an actor. And I've always been an actor. And I've always been curious about other people and telling stories. And I've been doing the same thing since I was a kid. Um, One of the things I love about this is that it's kind of a family production with your wife being an executive producer. And then your daughter is in it, too. Um, I guess the Gen Z connection there. Um, So tell me a little bit about how Maya got involved with the show. Well, anybody who knows Maya knows what a passionate young person she is. And, you know, she's a poet. She has an album out. um, I really don't use the word lightly. This kid's always been an amazing deep thinker. And when we started working on this show, she she had just been cast. And the BBC did a production of Little Women, which she's amazing in. And that really introduced her to the Transcendentalists. And there's this connection between John Brown and Emerson and Thoreau. And, and there's an earnestness to Maya and a passion and a zeal for the loving of all mankind. I mean, she, she, you know, she takes that Louisa May Alcott stuff seriously. Um, she feels that deep. And, and what was amazing for me as the dad of the show is I always wanted her to play my daughter. But when I first develop, started developing the project, it would have seemed like nepotism. And then Stranger Things came out and the execs from Showtime one time called up kind of kind of sheepishly and said, hey, do you think Maya might want to play your daughter? And I was like, yes. <laughs> I waited until it was their idea. Like, I don't know. Let me call her up and see if I've been talking to her about it for years. You know? um, and one of the things that I love about Maya is her love of other people and she just felt an immediate passion for Joshua and they got along like a house on fire and they're singing songs together and doing poems together and um, 
you know, Maya's really interested in vocal work and period work and what's in her character's pockets and trying to make her character as real as possible. You know, she was just coming out of Juilliard and, you know, she has a fire in her heart for art. And what's fun for me as a dad to be near her is it inspires me to be the person she thinks I am. You know, like, you know, like, <laughs> dad, what are, you, what are you doing to get ready for this scene? And the truth is, oh, shit, not much. Uh, and, 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 but because she's there, I have, to, I have to be the person I've been pretending to be. Or not pretending to be, but you know what I mean. My, the best, what's great about being a parent or a mentor or a big brother or, or whatever is you have to practice what you preach. And for years I've been telling her about the beautiful avenues that can open up in your own heart through performance, through giving over of yourself as a person and inviting other people into your heart and what that can do for you. It's a gift, you know, that we have this feeling like our own personal crises are so unique that nobody could ever understand and I could never understand anybody else. And one of the joys of acting is kind of opening yourself up to other time periods, other points of view, other attitudes, other costumes, you know, both the internal and the external and you start to it teaches you and she was it was a great blessing to have her on as you were saying before this has been such a strange um a strange time to have a show that you're that you're kind of excited by i have no idea if the emmys are going to be in person i guess they they might be um but we really don't know yet right um and then at the same time, there was this, you know, huge organizing this uh, past summer um, around the George Floyd death. And I think, um, I don't know, you were saying that you learned something from your roles. What do you feel, what do you feel you've learned from John Brown, especially over the course of this particular time of it debuting? Well, it's really two questions. Um, I'll take the second part first about the show debuting has been, I've never in my life enjoyed publicity. Um, it's been taxing and it seems to create a focus on yourself that is very uncomfortable. But the release of this show introduced me to so many people. You know, I've, I've gotten to do talks at Morehouse and Emerson, and I've gotten to meet journalists, and I've had arguments with people. And I mean, there's some people that don't want to look at this period of history at all because it's too hurtful, or they don't want to hear from John Brown, just another white Christian. I don't need to hear another white Christian talk. I, hey, all that makes sense. But that's why to make, to make it provokes the conversation. So even when people, you know, have a problem with it, I feel that dialogue is in service of something larger than any of us. And so the promotion of this movie at this moment in America's history, I just learned so much from the journalists. You know, I've, I've been interviewed by people who wrote biographies of Frederick Douglass. I've been, I've been interviewed by people who know a lot more about it than me and understand the context in a much deeper way. And, but I am one of the only people who've ever played John Brown. And I got to do it in a really big canvas, meaning you know, James McBride's portrait of John Brown is really complex. And I spent years of my life reading all his letters and reading what people wrote about him. And 
whenever you get intimate with a really serious human being, I mean, that's the value of reading biographies and things like that. A lot of people have had amazing experiences that we don't get in this lifetime. And feeling close to what he went through helps me see our nation in a different way. You know, you know the people who are really support the statues of the Confederate soldiers and their relationship to understanding history. I agree with them completely about understanding our history. I just disagree about what aspects of history we're celebrating, you know? Uh, and, but that's a very valuable conversation, you know? Uh, human beings, unbelievable focus on death and war and anger and our hero worshiping of violent people. Uh, I mean, even John Brown, John Brown made history through violence. He never made history as a nonviolent abolitionist. But what McBride would say is the strange wrinkle in that is he accomplished more through his letters from prison than he ever accomplished with the saber. Uh, and I don't know, I just mean to say it's felt like an honor to, just to have these dialogues with you and, and to it's kind of my dream as a young person is to use art to incite dialogue. That's, I kind of feel like whatever role the artistic community plays in society, it's, it's our job to start meaningful conversations. We don't have to finish them. We, we have to start the right, ask the right questions. Good music does that. Good music connects us. Powerful paintings connect us. And you feel in McBride's writing a hunger for healing. And uh, I share in that hunger. And so to be a, a small agent in that storytelling feels, it's, I, I looked forward to doing this podcast. I never, in my life, I, you know, when it's even something I love, the Before Trilogy or Boyhood, things that are of great meaning to me, I don't enjoy the publicity of it because it's something about it feels self-aggrandizing. Whereas these conversations kind of turn more meaningful. That is always kind of the hope. I mean, it's the hope with, with writing about these things, too, is you hope that you can advance this conversation in a meaningful way for people who are doing this in their lives right now, who are who are trying to, you know, grapple with white supremacy or understand how they as a white person might be able to better, you know, uh, stand up for what they believe in. And I think something that has come up again and again um, in when you've talked about it is John Brown has just not been a part of our history that we've really uncovered and looked at in a in a thoughtful way. Um, I mean, certainly people have, including James McBride, but, you know. But in general, it, he has not been. Yeah. No, on the whole, no. I mean, and I was I remember when I was writing this, uh, writing the review, I realized that uh, the Battle Hymn of the Republic started as a song about John Brown. John, John Brown's, Brown's body lies a molding in his grave. But they changed <laughs> the words to that song deliberately. You know, the Daughters of the Confederacy changed the words to that song on purpose because they yeah. didn't want him to be famous. Yeah. I mean, and and I think it speaks so much to how um, how history is weaponized, which I think goes back to again to these deep conversations we're happening about how the war the war doesn't end, and our own narrative of ourselves has to keep reshaping. So that's uh, that's so important, and being a part of that it matters. It matters a lot. I mean, the, one of the things there's a woman who runs the Civil War Museum in Virginia, who spoke to us, Cass, to try to help us get into the period and understand the time. And uh, 
you know, one of the things that she said is the reason why you can't teach John Brown is because if you teach John Brown, you have to teach human bondage and human trafficking and sex trafficking. And um, the realities of slavery are so much worse than what we want them to be. And so there's kind of this gentleman's agreement when the Civil War was over that we're just going to move forward. But we didn't address what had happened, the crime that happened. So then there you go. You got a big statue of Jefferson Davis on Monument Boulevard. You got a big statue of... And those statues were put up in the idea of like healing and saying, hey, you can have your pride. But fundamentally, it's a lie. Um, I mean, you know, you don't go into Berlin and see statues of Rommel. Um, it doesn't matter what a good soldier he was. He doesn't get a statue because he didn't stand for what we believe in as a, as a nation. We're, you know, using Germany's example, what they believe in. But, you know, you understand where I'm going with this. And how we tell our stories is fundamental to our understanding of our past. And it, our understanding of our past leads us to the present. There's a great line, though, you know, it's, it, I think it's Faulkner. It said the, the, the past didn't go anywhere. It's not even the past. I think about that all the time, actually. But it felt very real this summer. Yeah. Um, the thing that's coming up next for you is Waiting for Godot. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So has that already been, it's going to be a Zoom, Zoom play on, in May? Well, I'll tell you a little. I'll, I'll try to do it briefly. It okay. started. It started as this idea that we would do like a Zoom reading to try to benefit the theater, you know. And we, yeah. but we rehearsed it, and there's something so interesting about the desperation and uh, the lack of connection that happens on Zoom and its interaction with that play uh, that felt so powerful to us. I was doing it with John Leguizamo and Tariq and Wally Sean, you know, Tariq, Black Thought from the Roots. And and we were we were like, wow, this, this is actually really good. I mean, it felt like a new play to us. And we thought, well, what if, what if we, what if we memorized this? And what if we actually staged it in a Zoom setting? And what if, so we basically, I got sent to my house a set and my wife and I had to, we built in my son's bedroom this little cubicle. It's, it's almost like the characters are in these little bomb shelters, zooming each wow. other. Wow. And we're doing, we're doing the play like that. And I got to tell you, it was one of those ideas that started like, oh, this will be fun. It was so much work. Um, <laughs> but, but so we filmed it. And so it, it, it come, it's really like a film of Godot, but it's set as Zoom calls. So we put real cameras and we... We worked it like you would a movie, but it's waiting for Godot if they were in some pandemic where they weren't allowed to be together. And so I it's really thematically that really resonates. So I, I can see that really working. <laughs> Come on, the, the characters don't know if it's Thursday or Tuesday or Saturday or what difference does it make? And outside there are riots and outside people are getting killed and, and everybody's dead and you're terrified. And what are we waiting for? I can't even remember. Uh, and, uh, you know, what is normal? Um, so the, the, the play felt really vibrant and it didn't feel academic. All my whole life, that play was brilliant for sure, but it seemed awfully academic to me. Like, you know, like a little time capsule or a library piece or something. And now all of a sudden it felt visceral and immediate and funny. And Legazamo is one of our great artists. I mean, I just, I admire him so much and I've always wanted to act with, with John. And so we finally got to do something hard together. 
That's really that's really great. You might as well call it waiting for the vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. We should we should have called it you know Vaco waiting for Vaco. <laughs> Uh, that does it for this week's show. The Oscar flashbacks will continue next week. Jeff Giles is going to come on to talk about Witness with Harrison Ford, uh, which we're excited to talk about. So watch it and then listen to us talk about it next week. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us at Vanity Fair. Uh, Joanna, I meant to have you talk about this earlier, but there's a new season of Still Watching launching this week. Do you want to plug it real quick? Yeah, we're we're going, we're hopping through time and space with Loki. Uh, Richard Lawson and I, and joined by our colleague Anthony Bresnikan, and we got a little someone uh, by the name of Tom Hiddleston on the podcast this week to talk about heard of Loki. Him? Yeah, wow. yeah, heard of him. So, awesome. so uh, yeah, so we'll be doing that. We're excited to go back into Marvel Land. It's been it's been fun to. Yeah, people get really excited when we do Marvel stuff. So here we go. I think uh, a friend of mine try, is trying to get the phrase "hot Loki summer" uh, going. So uh, here we go. It's hot Loki summer. You know, the run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah. that. We support that. Very <laughs> <laughs> <Right> nice. <laughs> Nikki, yes, it's been really great Chill being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's a walk. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>